0: Good morning. Good morning. First Timothy chapter three. First Timothy chapter three is what we'll be at today. As we continue our study on elders, now as those of you who have heard me say, this is a uh, very important study for us. Uh, That is why we're taking several weeks just to walk through about six, seven verses because um, history of the church will show you uh, that the people in a church uh, rarely rise above their leaders. And what I mean by that is the leadership is poor. uh, It tends to cause issues with the church. And so it would seem to me that if God Uh, Inspires men to write down words regarding who leads the church, uh, that it would be something that we would really want to grasp and understand uh, as people. And so, um, this for you as covenant members of our church uh, is important for you because I have known for quite some time that this church does not belong to me, it belongs to the Lord. I have no idea how long I will be here, hopefully, uh, until I'm very old, um, but nevertheless, my job is to uh, preach the word to you uh, and prepare the church for the future, uh, including additional elders that God might bring to us. And so, um, your job as a member is to make sure you understand what is expected of elders. Uh, and so, that's why we're teaching through uh, this passage so carefully, two things I want to remind you of as we uh, move through uh, verse two, uh, I reminded of you, I reminded you of these last week. And one is, um, these are qualifications that might be in this particular passage reference to elders, but they are not qualifications that we wouldn't want all of our men to have. Meaning the goal of church, I would hope, in discipleship is that all of our men would be qualified to be elders, except that the ones who would be are the ones who desire to be, which is one of the qualifications. Uh, Clearly, this is not, uh, I don't have to be blameless, uh, since I don't want to be an elder, I don't have to be blameless. Uh, And I would add to this, um, that although this passage is speaking to men in leadership, Nevertheless, our women would obviously want to desire to be blameless with people. And so uh, this text is clearly for elders, uh, but there is nothing that's being asked of elders to do uh, outside of some gifting uh, that we would not want all of our membership to do. And so we are called to be holy because he is holy. Uh, and so that is what this text is referencing referencing, as I said last week, I may not be the picture of perfect health, uh, but I am well aware of the things I'm supposed to be doing to get there. Uh, And this text is laying out to us how our men who are in leadership should be behaving. And so last couple of weeks we have heard what this noble task is that God has called these men to. Uh, We have Uh, work through what it means to be above reproach and what it means to be blameless. Last week, uh, we handled the very weighty and difficult text of what does it mean to be a husband above what wife, and now we're going to move into uh, basically the rest of these characteristics, um, which I would say our sermon title uh, adequately describes, and that is a pattern of life. So let me read verses 1 through 2 just to give you some context. The Holy Word of God says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder or bishop or pastor, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. So now we have these additional characteristics that Paul is telling Timothy, as Paul also told Titus, if you've heard. Here are some defining characteristics that the men who leave your church must possess. This is not something that is suggested This is not something that is desired. It is a must for the men who lead the church. And the first one that he goes over here is sober-minded or temperate. Could be another word that some translations may have. The Greek word means to be sober or not intoxicated, to be clear-headed or self-controlled, frugal or prudent, or reasonable, and there would be some who would argue that this reference that Paul uses here is about elders not being drunk on wine, or they might even go further, if you're a good Baptist church, and you would say you can't have any alcohol. Uh, I would tell you that that's not my position at all, nor do I think that's Paul's position at this particular point in the passage. I don't believe that he is addressing Alcohol here. He is going to address alcohol a little bit further down in the passage, but I don't believe Paul is double emphasizing alcohol here. Rather, it would seem that Paul is using this Greek word uh, as he has used it in other passages and as Peter has used it himself, and that would be a man who is wary or watchful, being clear headed. Now, clearly, if he were intoxicated, If you've ever run into anybody intoxicated, I'm sure no one in this room has ever actually been themselves. Thank you. (laughs) I'm sure that's not happened, but as you would well know, an intoxicated person is not generally very clear-headed. But I don't believe, like I said, that's Paul's intent is to talk about alcohol as much as he is attempting to talk about the state of mind. If you have a King James Version... The King James Version does a pretty solid job of translating this word into vigilant, meaning clear-minded, so they can be careful to watch for possible danger or difficulties. Not long after I became a police officer, I found myself on the midnight shift, a very difficult shift to find yourself on as a rookie, because... Uh, you are generally not accepted as a rookie on the midnight shift. Uh, I was young and desperate to earn my place on this midnight shift. And so on July 4th, I found myself in the back part of the parking lot of the police department loading my car when I heard uh, several shots fired. I immediately got on the radio as a young rookie Ready to solve all of the crime of the world, and got on the radio and said, "Longview, has shots fired. They responded, Where? And I said, Longview appears to be coming near the Mob Cobb Activity Center. I need units. And I began to take command presence and take control of the situation. And I began to ask for units and telling them where to go. After all, I was a police officer. <laughs> Dispatch did not respond to my request. I was a little mystified, believing that maybe, just maybe my radio was not working, so I asked dispatch <laughs> if they had not heard my request. That we had shots fired near Mod Cobb, and I needed units in route. There was dead silence on the radio. And before I got back on the radio to explain my situation again, the watch commander of our shift, an older police officer who had seen many well-meaning rookies, got on the radio and said, 152, I believe your shots fired would be the fireworks show at Mod Cobb." Not knowing what to respond, I simply said, 10-4. Having a computer in the car, my computer began to go off with messages of great encouragement from the rest of the midnight shift. Things like, please turn your badge in. Quit now. Get out of the car. It was a long night on the midnight shift. To be sober minded, means to be clearly thinking about a situation. How I did not notice the fireworks in the sky is beyond me, but as I stood at my car and looked up in the sky, there were the fireworks. (laughs) So, as a church, you want men to be vigilant, to be sober-minded, to be clear in how they see things, So they don't make mistakes like that. That word fits well in the King James. You would hear Peter speak something very similar in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. When Peter, in his instructions as well, says, Be sober-minded, watchful. Here's why. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It's the same Greek word. And so clearly an elder needs to be watchful. After all, one of the descriptions of an elder is a shepherd. And shepherds watch over sheep. And sheep are easily attacked by wolves. And shepherds must constantly be sober-minded. You, if you are a sheep, in the midst of the woods, where the wolves are, would not be very excited to see your shepherd not sober-minded or drunk. Because he would no longer be able to be watchful over you, listening and scanning the horizons for the enemy, looking for false doctrines that might sneak into the church. Keeping an eye on members who may stray or for wolves who would sneak in to disrupt the flock. Here's the scary thing about this passage and the scary thing about 1 Peter chapter 5. The enemy never sleeps. But I do. The enemy never sleeps. In this small new church, the enemy has one desire, one, and that is to completely destroy it That's true. by any means he can. Yeah. And he is at work with his demons all the time without rest to destroy this church. You need shepherds who are sober minded who understand what they are supposed to be doing, to pay attention, to listen to people's thoughts on God, to analyze conversations, to keep an eye out for you. That's what shepherds do. They guard. They protect. And though it can be exhausting, you need that. I need that for my other shepherds at this church. And you clearly must be sober-minded to do that. The second one that Paul would go into is self-control. Now, I would say that theologians have difficulty with these two words because they are very similar between sober-minded and self-control. Yet, most would land that this word self-control, when you move it into the English language, tends to mean more about Sensibility and being prudent. Close related, as I said, to the idea of sober-minded. Yet, it would seem, seems that the Greek here is speaking to being responsible with your clear-mindedness, being clear-minded, but then using that clear-mindedness to be responsible by being sen- sensible when it comes to your emotions, to be self-controlled. I am clear-minded, I am sober-minded, And because I'm clear-minded or sober-minded and prudent, I am going to keep self-control of my emotions. Four translations land with this definition. To be sober or to calm or collected in spirit. Meaning not affected by passion or emotion. Not only do you want someone who is clear-headed and sober, but you also want someone who is level-headed how he handles decisions and adversity, the ability to not get tunnel vision in your emotions. Most of us have met someone or are growing up with someone, or maybe you have a friend now, or you work with somebody, or you have a boss who you would say is not level-headed. But like when a new policy comes out, uh, that person is the one that you're watching from when they hear about the new policy. You're like, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> it's that person, the person who cannot control his emotions. He may be clear-minded. He may totally understand what was just told to him, but his emotions erupt and he is not able to control them. Any of you ever been in a, at a workplace where that went over and you're just beginning to scatter? An elder whose passions get out of balance, an elder who is driven by their emotions instead of truth, who is driven by an agenda or a personal vendetta or by a bias, or, and this is the worst, who is driven by the need to be right, is downright scary. If you are known for the inability to control your emotions or for losing it when your ideas are challenged or not accepted, if you are the person who takes your ball and goes home when the game you want to play is not being played, if you are known as a divisive person who believes that every heel is worth dying on, if you react passionately before all information is digested or pondered, if that's you, you won't make a good elder. And I would tell you, you will have difficulty in Christianity if we are not able to control our emotions. Fly off the handle elders will utterly destroy the unity of a church. Cooler heads prevail. When you are in the heat of a battle, you do not need your leader panicking and losing his emotions. You need someone who is calm, who understands the situation. It is not that they are unemotional. Don't don't hear me. I didn't say unemotional. But the ability to control your emotions. This does not mean that battles do not have to be fight, or that sometimes shepherds do call out members, and sometimes even passionately call out members. They do so saturated in grace and love. And his words and his actions should be that of Jesus. Now, just for the record, we are talking about dealing with sheep. When it comes to the wolves, however, elders shoot wolves. Maybe not literally. (laughs) But when the wolves come around, we don't play with wolves. You hear me, church? We don't play with wolves. We handle wolves quickly and decisively. And sometimes people will say, well, that was rather strong. but well, they're wolves. And we handle the wolves very quickly. Sometimes passionate reaction is necessary to protect the sheep. You need a shepherd who understands how to do that in a way that they are self controlled? Like I said in this teaching for the next several weeks, this will be a lot more teaching and preaching. But you need to understand as a church that elders handle, or they should be handling, problems. I don't know if you're aware of this. Maybe you're not. But you put a whole bunch of people into a same building and tell them to get along. <coughs> Things don't always go well. Did you know you have an opinion about food and places of worship and music and styles? And times of service, if I were to back the church service up 15 minutes, there would be conversations about that. <laughs> One hour, never going to be able to I mean, it would just go off the handle. People get upset. Everyone has opinions. And elders handle problems, and they should be, because there's always problems. You need elders who are sober-minded and self-controlled with their emotions to listen to all sides, to look for sin, to look for ways to disciple those who are struggling. This includes listening to marriage conflicts, work conflicts, unity issues, theological issues, people's preferences, and the list goes on and on and on for what elders must and should be dealing with. Elders must be able to take criticism, even well-meant criticism, which is necessary. And listen, church, elders are not above Criticism. Hear me. Elders are not above being critiqued by the people. They're not. But the first reaction of most humans, as I imagine yours, how many of y'all have ever been critiqued about something, and while that person is critiquing you, you are coming up with your defense, right? Like, you haven't heard what they said yet, and you're like, well, when he gets done, we're letting him have it. We don't like it. Elders are humans redeemed by God who must be self-controlled. We must control our emotions even when we are being critiqued. I think I've told this story before, but years ago I was pastoring a church and I had a rule. The first church I ever pastor if you left my church, I would take you to lunch and find out why. So the first family left our church and I invited them to lunch and the husband said, I'll be the only one coming. And I said, that's great. Went and met them for lunch and I said, tell me about this, and he went on to tell me several things, and finally he summed it up like this. He said, you are a great youth pastor, but you are a terrible pastor. Check, please. (laughs) (laughs) You have to be able to handle that. He gave out his reasons, and we took those back to the elders, and the elders of that church said, we don't find any truth in those things. But elders must be able to handle this. Without losing their emotions, they must, they must walk by the Spirit. And how men react when challenged and critiqued is telling about their personality. And out of control elders, but their emotions are bad news. But elders who rightly are controlled by the Holy Spirit are life giving. The church. The next one is respectable. Seems like an easy word to see and think about, but yet when you study the Greek, it actually comes from where we get our English word "cosmos." That Greek word, respectable, in this text, in this passage, has this idea of a system of the universe, meaning. Uh, A man should be apt and harmonious. There should be an arrangement in his constitution. People say, well, translate. Tell me more about that. What does that mean? An elder should be well-arranged. I don't mean physically. Don't be having any thoughts about my gut. It's not what we're talking about here. They should be well-arranged. Not chaotic, which would be the opposite of cosmos. But they should be orderly, and how they behave. There should be an order to them. You are looking for men who are organized. Now, we're not talking about filing things the right way in a filing cabinet, but that there is a measure of direction in their life. They are not all over the map. They're not moving in tons of different directions. Their lives are not marked by chaos, but rather... They are moving in a direction. If they're going to lead the church in a direction, would you not want men who can lead in a direction? You do not want men who are all over the map. A man whose life seems to be in constant turmoil isn't a good candidate for elder. Someone who is unable to organize his thoughts or his life or his plans. Someone who is always hopping around from thing to thing never even able to accomplish any of his tasks, well, that's not someone you want as an elder. Chaos cannot be what describes their life, but rather organized and respected by others. In other words, when you look at this person, you say, that guy has his stuff together. If the description of you is, he's something, he, I don't know, he's all on the map. That's not the guy you want leading the church. The Revised Standard Version does a good job translating this word when it uses the word dignified. Mm -hmm. It means that the man, when you look at his life, his life is organized in such a way that you see that he is serious about life. Because there is order there on how things work. He is serious. Now how does this play into personality? Especially one like mine. Well, This calling does not, or does, this calling, this characteristic does calibrate my personality. There's nothing wrong with laughter and joy and humor. And if you know me, I enjoy having fun. I want to laugh and be joyful and be humorous. But my humor is crucial for me and my personality. My humor cannot be what defines me. Meaning this. If someone were to come up to me and say, I love hearing you preach because you're funny, that would be a disappointing description of my preaching. And it would be a disappointing description of my leadership. I would rather hope that you would say, Jason preaches with a passion the serious things of God and sometimes uses humor. Do you, do you see the difference there? My life should be marked with a seriousness about the things of God. It should be weighty on me as a man who God is and what God has called me to and what I've asked you to be called to from the scriptures. There should be a seriousness there. And so is a man respectable? Is he dignified? Does he take things seriously? Is his life well ordered? Next is Hospitable. The Greek word here is a compound word. The first part of the word means friend or one who loves. The second part of the word has a couple of meanings. One can be a host. In other words, a friend who hosts or someone who loves to host. But the second word can also mean a stranger. So what we have here is a man who is generous to guests. Someone who loves to host, although I think in context, I believe it is speaking to hosting believers or other sheep, but we do have instructions and other passages as well that we should be hospitable toward strangers. Romans 12 verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints, contribute to the needs of the saints, and show hospitality. That's also a calling for you, not just elders, do See what I did there? It's a calling for you too. Hebrews 13:2 says this: Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I like, I think that's a real verse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that—that really—that's in the Bible. How many times have you turned away from a stranger? Just throwing that out there. It's in the Bible that we as believers should show hospitality even to strangers. Now, before you get the wrong idea, this is crucial because I think this is incorrectly taught. Hospitality is not just loving having people over to your house. That's not, oh, you, y'all want to come over to the house? I love it when people come to my house. No, that's not hospitality. No, no. Hospitality is a deep desire to respond to people's needs by hosting them in your home or by showing them this love for their need. To say, person who has a passion for people who need fellowship or people who need counsel or help, a listening ear, someone who needs to weep, all with a gospel centered purpose. I cannot tell you how many times in my life. As a pastor, my wife and I have decided to sit down to finally watch a movie, all excited about spending some time together, when the phone rings or there's a knock on the door. It happens. It happens a lot. My wife has always responded by saying, Let's serve. If you're looking for, and she's not in here, but if you're looking for what does it mean to be a person who is hospitable, you have The greatest example I have ever personally seen, and I know she's my wife, a little partial, but my wife is a picture of this. If you need her, she will be there. If you need to come over, she will make sure that your needs are met. She doesn't do that because she wants a friend, although she does. She does that because she loves Jesus. And she wants to show you Jesus' love. And so we need men who are like this. To be an elder, to be a pastor, you must be ready to regularly have your plans and that of your families interrupted. (laughs) That is a pattern of your life, interruptions. I do not put the church before my wife and kids all the time. But there are times And listen, this is also incorrectly taught in the church today by all pastors, I think, that I've ever heard under the age of 40. (laughs) The calling on my life is also a calling on the life of my family. And there are times that as a pastor, the plans of your family will be put on the back burner to serve somebody else. The previous generation of pastors who are much older than I have counseled me more than one time that they far too often neglected their families and their marriages and their own responsibilities to raise their kids in the ways of the Lord. And they did it only for the church. And I get it, and I hear that, and I believe that is true, and I believe that was wrong. And every pastor that I've ever met over the age of 60 who's ever spoken that into my life, they say, love your wife, don't allow the church to divide you and your wife and you and your children. There is great truth to that. But I am fearful that we have a generation that thinks you can get involved in sacrifice-free ministry. And there is no such thing, folks. You can pastor, they think, and never miss an important moment in your family's life. And I'm telling you, that is not true. It's not. The life of a pastor is a calling. And to be an elder means you will miss out on some things. You will. There will be times when you will miss out on things because you are called upon to provide hospitality. We have tried in our family to teach this to our kids, and I think they've gotten it down pretty well. And when the doorbell rings and someone opens the door and the person on the other side of the door is weeping, my kids gather their things and go to the rooms. They know what's about to happen. Someone who's coming for counseling. And we try to tell our kids, we do this for the gospel. We do this for the gospel. I want my kids to see that a calling of a pastor means that I have to sometimes put everything else on a back burner because the calling of the gospel is costly. It's costly. And don't you want that in your pastor's? I mean, do you want a pastor in your time of need when you call him to go, hold on a second, let me check with my calendar to see if I can do this today. Well, my kid's just been in a wreck and she's in the hospital. i got to be honest with you. i got a 3 o'clock. I don't want to do. I mean, it's not what you want. You want pastors who respond. And you want them to do it in the right way. First Peter chapter 4, verse 9 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hey, can I come over? I need to talk about my marriage. Oh, we'd love to have you over. Come on over. You're not going to believe who's coming over. Oh my gosh, they'll never leave. I mean, that's, that would be terrible. Would that not be terrible? So you want men who can show hospitality without grumbling. That is a catch. You don't want men who are put out with having people over. You don't want men as pastors who see this as an interruption to their day. Not only is that anti-Christian, it's a disqualification for elder. And finally, the last of chapter 2, able to teach. We won't spend a lot of time on this because I think we spend a lot of time on this. This is one of the characteristics. This is the one characteristic, I should say, that sets apart deacons and elders. Meaning, this one is not found in the list of requirements for deacons. Although I have met deacons that can most certainly teach, it just means that it's not a requirement in order to be a deacon, but it is an absolute must for someone to be an elder. Now, we've covered in 1 Timothy 5:17 through 18 about this idea of teaching, but I'll read it again. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor and preach in the teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So I believe it is possible to be an elder and know how to teach, but not necessarily be spiritually gifted with teaching. An elder should, however, be able to expound on the scriptures in a meaningful way. One that explains the text and can show Christ in the text and can point people to the gospel. This is an absolute must. You cannot be an elder if when you get a Bible, you can't work your way through it. You're, you're not an elder. You may want to be an elder, and you can work harder in the area of understanding God's word, but you need to be able to walk people through it. We see this in 1 Timothy when it calls this a labor. That There is a labor to this. There is a job here. There is work that is being done when you expound on God's word. That word literally means wearis, wearisome. Effort or to toil. It's crazy how tired I am after I preach. I'll just be—it is the weirdest thing in the world. Preach for 40 minutes and you're like, or 50, <laughs> and I am exhausted. There is something to this, just in delivering the sermon that has toil to it. Not counting the time that you spend to prepare. And listen, you want elders who prepare and see this. As a task that must yes. be completed. Now there are different teaching styles and different listening styles. I've had friends who have set in sermons that I have set in, and I've walked out of the room with them and went, well, that was awful. <laughs> and they said, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. And I'm like, well, there you go. There are different teaching styles, and I get that. But being able to teach and expound on the Scriptures is a requirement. This church hears me at the beginning of every year on the importance of preaching God's word. And we believe, as a church, it is the most important thing that occurs when we gather as saints. The exalting of the word of God is exalting God. Exalting the word of God is exalting God. And elders need to be able to do this. Now, all this is enabled by the gospel. These men are not gifted like this from birth. You need to hear me. There are natural leadership styles. I get that. Natural leadership styles. We're not looking for men with natural leadership styles. We're looking for men who are Holy Spirit driven and gifted as elders. That's what we're looking for. This is Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 13. My favorite verses in all the Bible. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Meaning this. We need men who work at these characteristics. None of us are there perfectly all the time. But we hear the calling of Scripture and we say, I need to be a man who is self-controlled. I need to be a man who is order and and have a plan. i need to be a man who is dignified and we see this, we hear this, and we work on it. And you're like, whoa, 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 I bet she's the Holy Spirit Spirit -driven." driven. Yeah, that's what that verse is. We are called to work on it and yet the power for us to work on it is supplied by God. Isn't this the weirdest thing? Work out your own salvation. Who? You. Well, how am I going to do that? Glad you asked. God's going to do it. What? you work it out, God will work it out. Uh, yes. and we need men who understand this and who see this in their life and who call it in their life and they're willing to work on it. So here's the gospel. You were separated from God because of your sin. Destined for hell for all eternity which will never pay for your sin. That's how awful your sin is, that you would spend eternity there. And yet, God, because of his love and mercy for you, sent his son to take your place on the cross so that those who put their faith and trust in the sacrifice of Christ are redeemed and made new and brought back into a right relationship with God. That is the gospel. And no man can ever lead a church who doesn't understand that, know that, and be in awe of it. Yeah. That's where it begins. It yes. begins with the gospel. Amen. And as a church, you need men who have these characteristics and are driven by the gospel. In closing, let me just say this. If you're a Christian man, a redeemed man, whose life has been changed by the gospel, people say, well, how do I get my life changed by the gospel? The Bible says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Well, how do I know I'm truly saved? Your life will never be the same again when you meet God. Not perfect, but never the same again. And if you are one of these men in here and you have heard the characteristics that you lack, here's the great news. Work on those characteristics by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ask the Lord for help. Seek out other men who you think do this well, what you do poorly. Gain accountability, grow in character, and regardless if you want to be an elder or not, desire to be qualified to be one. Desire to be this kind of man. Important teaching for our church. These are the kind of men, as this church grows, that we're asking God to step into eldership roles. Our hope is that we will have more lay elders than pay elders. That's what our hope is. And so God, by our prayer and our request, we hope we'll add more and more men to our church who will come and help lead us. A plurality of elders, a plurality of pastors, leading a church is a healthy Think it's a healthy thing. It's healthy for you. As Keith comes to let us sing and worship this great God who does these kind of things in men, pray that you would sing with joy because of the good news of the gospel. And I'll come back in just a moment and give us the final benediction. Let me pray for us, Lord God, you're good. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. I pray, Lord, that our people would hear this teaching from your word and that as this church continues to grow that you would bring men who might be qualified to be elders that these people in this church, these coveted members would hold to this passage and hold our men to it. We are never going to be perfect, Lord. But you have called us. You have called us to be different. And I pray, Lord, That our men, all of our men, would strive for holiness in their lives. Not to earn your love, but because we already have it. We love you, Jesus. It's your name we pray.